From Foreign Policy and the Brookings Institution, we bring you And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. On each episode, we examine one vexing problem, trace its origin, and offer a way forward. Today, how to save Venezuela. This was one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And all of a sudden, it's uh, just, uh, it's grief-stricken, poverty-stricken. Venezuela is in a state of emergency right now. Its currency has been devalued 92% since the last two years alone. Yes, we have received 1.4 million Venezuelan brothers and sisters. Why? Because they are dying of hunger because they lack of medicine. Some come with frozen bones without hope. From my experiences here, this government here is run by criminals. This is a criminal state. Would-be President Juan Guaido may have the recognition of a number of international players, but inside Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro remains very much in charge. Our guest today is Danny Bahar, a fellow in the Global Economy and Development Program at Brookings. Danny is also a renowned global economist with roots in both Venezuela and Israel. Danny, welcome to the podcast. Let's start with the problem and try and describe its contours. We're here to talk about the crisis in Venezuela, a country that was once the envy of Latin America for its democracy and also for its oil-rich economy. How would you summarize the crisis in Venezuela today? Well, we can actually sadly do it in just a few sentences. Um, Venezuela is probably right now the home of the largest humanitarian crisis that this hemisphere has seen, perhaps the world, in modern history. These are the faces of extreme poverty in Venezuela. Here, the economic collapse has left an unsettling sight. Extremely thin children who don't know when they'll eat next. They're fleeing political turmoil and a country in economic freefall that is threatening its neighbors. Venezuela already has the world's highest inflation, and it looks like the economic crisis there is about to get even worse. This is a man-made crisis. It was manufactured by those in power for the past 20 years as a result of many things, including perhaps being the most one of the most distorted economies in the world and sort of a deadlock that we don't really know how this is going to change anytime soon. And run through some of the numbers just to give us a sense of the extent of the problem. Right. So just to give you an idea, the GDP of Venezuela, which is the way economies measure the whole production a country makes, um, went down by approximately 60% in the past uh, four or five years. I just want to put that number in context, because when you think about the Great Depression of 1929, which was, you know, the most horrible thing that happened to the economy of the United States, that's peanuts compared to a 60 percent drop in production. Hmm. So that's, of course, in the background. And then, of course, that has a lot of consequences from a humanitarian perspective. Infant mortality, for instance, which is a pretty good proxy for the overall health system, it grew by 44% between 2013 to 2016. Mm. The minimum salary of Venezuelans, which is the salary that most Venezuelans actually have, because of a hyperinflation, it has been completely depleted. Its currency has been devalued 92%. So today, uh, Venezuelans can buy 92% fewer calories, if you think about how to convert money to calories, than what the minimum wage could purchase in early 2010. 
uh, meaning that if you are a salaried worker in Venezuela, your salary is worthless. You need a backpack full of money to buy a dinner. And is that translating to mass malnutrition or even starvation? Yes, very much. Actually, there were some very scary statistics out there showing that 75% of Venezuelans have lost 20 pounds on average. This is involuntary, of course, mm -hmm. not voluntary weight loss. Is the heart of the problem political? Is it economic? Is it humanitarian? Or is it impossible to separate the three? It's, it's impossible to separate, but if I must, let me say that I think at first and foremost is political. I mean, Venezuela is not a democracy anymore. There's a very strong authoritarian rule that um, basically it seems like to be doing everything they can to stay in power. The Inter-American Press Association and other press freedom groups have denounced Venezuelan police for using force, intimidation and repression against journalists while they were covering recent demonstrations. The Venezuelan government is violating the human rights of unarmed protesters. Those are the findings in a new report. From for months, the opposition has been taken to the streets to demand elections, accusing the government of dismantling Venezuelan institutions to hold on to power. And that, of course, has implications on the economy. They have some ideological rules on how to deal with the economy when it comes to policy. When it comes to enriching themselves, that's a different story because there's a lot of um, anecdotal evidence and even some hardcore evidence on, on the huge corruption schemes that people at the very high levels of government are engaged in, including even some drug dealing schemes. Is Venezuela effectively a, a failed state? Well, you know, it, it, it's a subjective definition, I guess, but if it's not yet, it's definitely getting there. Um, Does the government still function in the sense that it provides the sort of basic services the governments are supposed to provide? No. I mean, I think that there's, so, of course, not only because they don't have the money, but neither they have the ability to do stuff. For instance, public hospitals are in, in a terrible state and there's no health system. So if you actually are a diabetic, and this actually happens in Venezuela, you just don't find insulin. So you could actually die from a very preventable disease and many other preventable diseases. Talk about the kind of problems the crisis is having on, or is causing for Venezuela's neighbors. Well, the biggest problem, of course, is the huge refugee crisis that, that have emerged from Venezuela. What are the numbers like? We're talking as of now about 4.3 million refugees from official sources. And that's from a total population of what? Of about 31 million. Oh. And there's no signs that that's going to stop. So in, the, in a sense, that's really putting a lot of pressure on the countries in the region. Colombia being the largest recipient. Colombia has right now about 1.3 million, perhaps even more, Venezuelan migrants and refugees. South American countries are struggling to keep up with the massive flow of these refugees, and the situation has sparked a new kind of backlash. So as in any other refugee crisis, you do see that in the short run, there's a lot of pressure overall in infrastructure, for instance, hospitals and schools in the bordering areas that get really crowded. Mm -hmm. um, that's also happening in Ecuador, Peru, that also have very large numbers. Between those three countries, it's about 70 percent of the refugees. And that's a fascinating topic in the sense that this refugee crisis is being treated very differently than the ongoing one from Syria and Europe. So I think Latin American countries have shown a lot of courage and a lot of kindness in receiving these people. Um, and why do you think that is, that the refugees have been greeted so differently throughout Latin America than Syrians or North Africans are in Europe, for example? Well, there's one aspect to it, which I, 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 these things are hard to point exactly, but one aspect of it is that 
it was Venezuela, the country that historically received everybody. Mm. Uh, my grandparents were refugees from Europe who arrived to Venezuela. Venezuela had in 1945 a government and it had a minister of agriculture. He was only 28 years old and he went to Europe to bring refugees coming out of World War II to say, hey, come on, we need to build this country. And Venezuela actually was kind of the poster child of migrant integration. It not only received refugees from World War II, it later on received many Latin Americans that were fleeing dictatorships, many Colombians that were fleeing uh, violence in the 1980s. So at some point, Venezuela hosted more than two million Colombians. But I think that there's another aspect of it, and I say this also after working closely with people in the Colombian government in particular, is that they understand that this could be a huge opportunity of economic growth, actually, if the right policies are put in place. And the best example of that is Venezuela, <laughs> who received many migrants. Mm. And, you know, perhaps they were part of the key of how Venezuela came to be the wealthiest country in the region back in the 1970s. So let's get into the origins of the crisis and talk about how we got here. But before we start talking about the history, I'd like you to take a minute just to describe what Venezuela was like in the 1970s. Because I think it's in order to understand the full scope of the tragedy, it's important to understand how far Venezuela has fallen and what it used to be like. You grew up in Venezuela, right? Right. Well, you know, the, I think that the, the, the one phrase that I think really captures a lot of, about how Venezuela was, even before I actually was born, was this phrase in Spanish saying, Tabarato dame dos, which means it's cheap, give me two, give me two of those. And this was this particular part of Venezuelan history in the, in the mid-70s, where Venezuela nationalized the oil industry. And then after the Yom Kippur War, the October War in, in 1973, the price of oil really went up. And then suddenly Venezuela had a huge inflow of money and they didn't really know what to do with it. That later on, created economic problems, but at the time, it really appreciated the currency, and Venezuelans became very, very wealthy. They used to go to, I mean, you know, tons of flights to Miami daily, and they would just buy, and Miami was cheap. They would say, you know, this is cheap, give me two. So part of it, of course, was the oil. I mean, the oil helped this country to become really, really rich. Venezuela, newly rich from her vast oil reserves, is busy developing her other resources. Macagua Dam, a 13 million pound project, is part of this process of cashing in on prosperity. But it was also a democracy, wasn't it? It was a very strong democracy. It was the longest-lasting democracy in Latin America when countries like Argentina, Brazil, Chile had very fierce military dictatorships. Venezuela was, like, really strong with its democracy that they regained in, in the 1950s. So when you were growing up there, it was both wealthy and free? It was wealthy. Um, it was free. It was a great place to live. Um, already in the 80s, you could start to see the problems that I think at the end resulted in the election of Hugo Chavez. So, I mean, I do remember being a kid and I was privileged to be in a middle-class family, middle-upper-class, but I do remember always seeing poverty around me. So there was a country of huge inequalities. But it sounds like things then start to take a dramatic turn with the election of Hugo Chavez, right? Correct. Tell us what year that was and how things started to change. Well, let me tell you when, Hugo Ch when we heard from Hugo Chavez the first time. That was in February of 1992. I was a kid, and, and I remember waking up, my mom waking me up at 5.30 in the morning, saying there's a coup. The men in the red berets are rebel paratroopers. 
That's an armoured vehicle driving up the stairs right in front of the presidential palace. It was an attempt to remove from office and possibly kill the president, Carlos Andres Perez. My first reaction was like, oh, so there's no school, right? Of course. Uh, and Chavez started a coup. It was not successful. But he was smart enough to, as a condition to public surrender, he asked for five minutes in the TV, which for some reason the government accepted. Comrades, unfortunately for the moment, the objectives that we had set for ourselves had not been achieved in the capital. That is to say, those of us here in Caracas have not been able to seize power. And he said in that speech, we haven't been able to accomplish what we wanted here in Caracas yet. He said, yes, por ahora. And that yet, of course, stuck in the minds of, of many Venezuelans, particularly Venezuelans of middle class and lower who have been struggling economically for the years beforehand. And he was sent to jail. And but only was, for a few years, right? I've never understood why that was. He was in jail from 1992 until about 1997, and the reason he was was pardoned. He was Mm -hmm. pardoned by the president that came after the one that he was revolting against. Um, That's some of the questions that are up there in history, like, was that a mistake? I think it was, but uh, looking back, eyesight is 2020. Um, So he's pardoned in 97. He was pardoned around 96 or 97, Mm -hmm. and I want to say that a lot of the things that led Chavez to be where he uh, ended up was thanks to the Venezuelan democracy, to the very strong institutions that were there, Um, that, you know, the the judicial system that allowed a pardon from the president. Uh, He became president in 1999. Now, Chavez comes to office promising to improve the lives of the poor Venezuelans, the Venezuelans who haven't enjoyed the boom of the good years. Through, and he promises to do this through generous social spending. Does he deliver at first, and do the lives of the poor start to improve in Chavez's early years? He did. He did. But I want to say artificially. What do you mean? Well, that's not a difficult premise to accomplish, when you are running an oil exporting country and the price of oil is above $100 a barrel. Even a dead chicken can do it. Mm. (laughs) So he was very successful through social spending to allow the poor to consume more, which is a good thing. I'm all for it. I think that part of poverty is is a lack of ability of the poor to consume and, and anything that will help them to consume more, it's better. And did you see like key indicators of public welfare starting to improve under at this time? Yes. You saw, for instance, the poverty rate goes down dramatically, I think from 80% to about 40% at the peak of the oil boom. And Chavez's many social subsidies have resulted in health care becoming accessible to the majority of the population in Venezuela, while college enrollment has also doubled since 2004. But I'm saying this was artificial and not sustainable for a few reasons. Because even though it's Maduro now, the one who is leading publicly the, the disaster. This is Nicolás Maduro, who was uh, Chávez's successor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was basically, he's here um, selected by him. But Chávez set the stage for this to happen. 
Um, Chavez basically did exactly the opposite of what you would learn in an Economics 101 class. When Chavez experienced the largest and longest oil boom in the history of Venezuela, not only the money was spent in social programs and many other things, but he borrowed much more money. He went to the world and said, we need more money. He started issuing bonds from the government. And at that time, it was kind of easy to borrow because when you are doing well, people think that you're going to pay them back. Sure. And he used all that money, um, some of it in social programs, but a lot of it to subsidize consumption. And that's a good thing, but it depends where is that consumption coming from. When you actually look at the graphs now, at the statistics, that consumption didn't come from more production. There was no more production in Venezuela. It was all imports. The country's total debt has more than doubled, despite the fact that Venezuela has the largest proven oil reserve in the world. So a lot of stuff was imported, and the private sector in Venezuela was being basically strangulated. And, and, and that's what I said at the beginning. This, this was a manufacturer crisis right. because these things can be dealt with. Right. Um, you know, Norway exports oil, but they don't go through this. They have their funds where they put their money in the good times. And right. so um, no, Chile did the same thing. No with rainy mining. day fund created by exactly in Venezuela. Right. Meanwhile, domestic industry is being hollowed out. Um, Chavez is also criticized for destroying the oil sector, the w one key part of the economy that was functioning and it was responsible for so much wealth. Describe the kind of things he did there. Well, you're right. The Venezuelan oil company, PDVSA, used to be like a world-renowned company with the best technicians and innovation coming out of that. It was kind of a, one of these marvels of a company that is owned by the government, but still it behaves like with the best practices of any private sector company. Um, Chavez started a little fight with them, and this actually started in 2001 the managers of the company joined a national strike mm -hmm. and there was no gas for your cars. I mean, there was, it was really bad for a few weeks. And after he survived that coup attempt that ended up in a coup that where he was out of power for just 48 hours, he became much harsher with his authoritarian style. And part of the things he did eventually was that he basically fired on national TV, the high management of PDVSA. And at that point, PDVSA became very political. He mm. appointed very political people, uh, became a company that I think now in its payroll, it has tens of thousands of people because they're also, for instance, they started doing a lot of social programs. You know, who knows how many corruption schemes that were running through the company. But the success of a company is not measured by its input, it's measured by its output. And Venezuela was able to produce in the mid-2000s about almost 3.5 million barrels of oil per day. And now it's way below 1 million, mm. it's perhaps in the 700,000. So that downward trend of production of oil started back then. And what was Chavez doing to Venezuelan democracy at the same time that he was destroying the oil industry? How was he undermining democracy in Venezuela? As soon as he got into power, he changed the constitution when he was having a lot of popularity. So it was easy for him to do. So the new constitution passed a referendum vote, etc., where he extended his mandate for six years um, and allowing for re-election. And then at some point, he also did another referendum to extend and to be able to re-elect himself forever, basically. He also started like uh, really playing a big role in reappointing judges and justices to the Supreme Court so that he will have also the judicial system gain loyalty within the judicial system. 
Um, and the military. He started a campaign of indoctrination. The military, which is supposed to be a neutral institution that will support any government, started to call themselves Bolivarians or Chavistas. So that was a very scary thing, and he started it. Chavez finally leaves office in 2013, but it's not because he loses an election. It's because he dies of cancer. He succeeded by Nicolas Maduro, who is his handpicked successor. What happens to Venezuela then? So I always joke that, you know, Chavez had the big fortune of dying before the price of oil went down. Mm. When Maduro comes into power, he's a much different figure than Chavez. He's much less charismatic. He was very loyalist. He's not a military guy, as opposed to Chavez. He actually was coming from the worker unions and ideologically very close to communism and to Cuba. And he comes into power in a situation that, to some extent, didn't have anything to do with him, but it really determined everything that happened after, which is that the price of oil goes down. The world hasn't seen such a drop in crude oil prices for a long time. A slowdown in demand and increased production of shale oil were the two main factors in the price decline. In 2014, the price of oil commodities go down dramatically. And suddenly, Maduro is the president of a country that is highly indebted because of all the debt that Chavez had brought in, where the production of oil is going down because the state-owned company doesn't have the capacity to keep up, and where most of the consumption is happening through imports. And imports started to go down dramatically. That's when you started to see already in 2014, 2015, that um, the supermarkets were emptying up, the pharmacies were emptying up. On paper, this is a rich country. Yet its people are forced to shuffle along in lines for toilet paper. You know, if you were a patient, maybe the, the medicines were not there, the medical equipment was not there. The situation right now is very difficult. Every day is worse. When their inability to raise more money through the financial markets uh, became more and more apparent, they just went to the central bank and turned on the machine, started printing money and printing money and printing money. And that resulted in the hyperinflation that we have today. I think Venezuela is the only country in the world right now that is going through hyperinflation. And it might, have been, it, it might be the only country or one of the few countries where hyperinflation has lasted this long. Mm. And describe the state of politics today. Venezuela now technically has two presidents, right? It has Maduro, but it also has Juan Guaido, who has declared himself president and been recognized by a lot of other countries, including the, the United, United States. The United States supports the courageous decision by Juan Guaido, the president of your National Assembly, to assert that body's constitutional powers, declare Maduro a usurper, and call for the establishment of a transitional government. President Juan Guaido may have the recognition of a number of international players, but inside Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro remains very much in charge. So both are really playing to their strengths. What is the state of play today? Are we in a sort of a, a deadlock or a stalemate between the two sides? Um, yes, we are in a situation in which, like, if we were in a tunnel, we don't really see the light and we don't see the tunnel either. We mm. don't really know how to get out of this. Um, now it seems like everything is up. So, Danny, now we get to the really difficult part, which is what can be done to fix all of this? How does Venezuela find its way out of this crisis? Does it have to start with getting rid of Maduro? Yes. 
Okay, so how do you do that? <laughs> Look, Maduro and beforehand Chavez, they knew that um, they will try to stay in power for as long as possible and that they will not always count with the popular vote to do it. So they've created the context so that that could happen. For instance, by indoctrinating the military and by reshaping the military in a way in which the military are really intertwined with the government in ways that were manufactured. So, for instance, today, Venezuela has about 2,000 generals. The Venezuelan army has 2,000 generals. That's more than NATO combined. So imagine, I mean, it's impossible to coordinate. And and all these generals, I mean, many of them don't even have troops. You know, I think it's pretty fair to say this in many cases or in most cases, they're running some huge corruption schemes. Mm -hmm. And if you are a general in the Venezuelan army, there should be, I'm guessing, in some file, evidence of your corruption scheme. Because it's not only that you are being tempted to stay in, but you could be highly punished if you leave. Right. And that happens from generals to colonels and even to soldiers. So, so the military has been co-opted, but the military officers are also being intimidated to remain loyal to the regime. But is um, there a point at which you could imagine the leadership of the military saying, look, enough is enough. This guy is destroying our country. If we allow this to continue, there will be no Venezuela left. And the military then switches sides to the opposition. Well, that's the hope. Part of the reason that we are thinking about hope is because we don't know the military. It's a black box. We don't really know what's happening in there. And there are some of these generals that have deserted. And I think that there should be, if I was a politician in the Venezuelan opposition, which I'm not, I would think on ways to engage with these people that were inside. And they should know more than us on what's happening and try to think creatively, like, what are the things that could create those events that you're describing. Well, has the opposition offered them incentives like amnesties, for example, if they agree to switch sides? They have. Um, Seems like it hasn't been credible enough. Do you have in mind other measures that might help? Um, Steps the opposition could take to further shift the balance? Look, I mean, I think the opposition deserves credit on a lot of things. I think internationally they've done a great job on putting international pressure. I think the eyes of the opposition should be now on places like Russia and China. They could play a big role through the U.N. Right. And how how would one persuade China and Russia to dump uh, Maduro? Um, the Chinese and the Russians have invested in Venezuela. The Chinese in lending money to the government. With China, I think it should be clear they have a much, much higher probability of getting their money back mm-hmm. if there's a change of government. Right. So I think that that, to me, is a no-brainer, that they should be looking into that, and that should be the message that should be given to them. And what should the United States do? Because uh, to be fair to Washington, it's in a very difficult position in the sense that it can't intervene too directly or in too heavy handed a way, because if it does, it could provoke a nationalist backlash in the country because of the very bad history of U.S. intervention throughout Latin America. And I know that even in the opposition, there's a lot of controversy and um, ambivalence about the United States playing a bigger role than it has. Look, I'm very sympathetic in general to the American people when they think about how the U.S. should not intervene in Latin America in particular because of the terrible history of things that have gone very badly. And I'm very sympathetic to that. And I know that their hearts in the right place, especially when we're talking about like liberal America. I do think that Venezuela is a progressive cause. I mean, this is a cruel dictator who is starving his people, who is not willing to admit humanitarian aid in the country. It's a rotten gift, a trap, he said, accusing the U.S. of sending the aid only as a political ploy to unseat him. 
This is not a nation of beggars. So there's no way that progressives should be defending this guy. I think in that sense, there's more work to be needed to maintain this as a bipartisan issue. I think the administration should do it. I mean, again, this is the only policy that I can think of that could have or has bipartisan support. And I think that that's an opportunity for the Trump administration to continue that way. Um, It's time to rethink on the sanctions. I think that the personalized sanctions have worked and are working and they should continue, like sanctioning people in the Venezuelan government who have enriched themselves throughout these years of staying in power and even their family members and also with the military to do it progressively, maybe from top to bottom, to create incentives that, you know, maybe it's your time to turn your back to the government before the sanctions get to you. So there are ways to do that. I think that the U.S. has really gone far in terms of the overall sanctions. It comes after Washington imposed a total economic embargo against the Venezuelan government. The sanctions place Venezuela on par with North Korea, Iran, Syria and Cuba. Um, There's a whole discussion whether these sanctions are actually having an effect or not. I mean, they might be having some effect. It's very hard to attribute whether, you know, the further drop in oil production is because of the sanction or is because it was already dropping from before. But, you know, I think historically we have to admit that sanctions put pressure, but they might not be the magic solution. Danny, you grew up in Venezuela. Can you imagine returning to the country anytime soon? And and can you imagine Venezuela being restored to the kind of wealthy, prosperous, um, and in many ways stable and successful country it was when you were growing up? I hope so. I'm not very optimistic now that uh, we're going to be able to see a change in government anytime soon. But this refugee crisis that has been created, which is a horrible story. When you hear these people, I've been to the border several times. I talk to them. They all have horrible stories on, on how they suffered. But they actually could be the reconstruction to a key to in the reconstruction of the country, precisely because the future of Venezuela cannot rely on oil anymore. That's something we learned. So people who are working in different industries in Colombia or Argentina or the U.S., they could bring that te- those technologies, that know-how back home and make a diversified economy. And I just hope that we, we see that Venezuela again. I, I go very often to many other cities in Latin America, Bogotá, for instance, Medellín, and I get a little bit jealous. It's a little bit bittersweet because that's the Caracas that never was. Mm-hmm. But I think it could be and it, it should be a place that flourishes and, again, to become the wealthiest country in the region and we should hope it's going to happen and keep the optimism up. Danny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Danny Bahar, a fellow in the Global Economy and Development Program at Brookings. Thanks for listening to And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a collaboration between FP and the Brookings Institution. Our production staff includes Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Maya Gandhi, Camilo Ramirez, Anna Newby, and Emily Horn. Next time on And Now the Hard Part, we take on the impossible problem that every recent U.S. president has inherited, but none has been able to solve. Brookings Senior Fellow Jung Pak traces the rise of North Korea's Kim Dynasty and suggests how the United States should deal with the nuclear-armed country. It's either his weapons program or his survival. He can't have both economic development and um, nuclear weapons and regime survival. That's next week on the podcast.